Tonight we meet Isaac, who is the long-awaited son of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac literally means laughter because when Sarah heard that she was pregnant, she laughed. After all, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Yeah, 90, and not only 90, but 90 and infertile. So it's no wonder she laughs. Abraham and Sarah promised a great nation, and there's going to be a promised lineage from both Abraham and Sarah. Without any children and, well, being up there in years, they started to doubt God's promise. That's why, if you remember, Abraham conceived a child Ishmael with his maidservant. But God's plan and promise was for the lineage to come from both Abraham and Sarah, and that's fulfilled in the birth and person of Isaac. This birth proves that God can do all things. So now this huge nation that God had promised, with as many descendants as there are stars in the skies, all hangs in the life of Isaac, which is why it must have been a huge test to Abraham to obey God by going up the mountain and sacrificing Isaac. After all, if Isaac is gone, then what about the promised lineage? Abraham had so much faith in God that he kept saying, God will provide, and God did. And with Isaac, we get Jacob who becomes Israel, and his sons become the 12 tribes of this promised nation. So there you go, a little bit about Isaac, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to come and dig into your word. We pray Lord, as we're here, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us in power, that we might get what it is that you have to share with us tonight, that we might understand the scriptures better, that we might experience the comfort that comes from your promises, the reminders that come from your love, and the reality that we are forgiven because of Jesus. Father, again, be with us tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So there were a lot of questions last week. And one of the ones that I want to answer, I think, is just because it was a great question, and it's a question that keeps coming up, and it will keep coming up as we go through Genesis. And that is, why does God allow evil? And maybe the flip side of that same question is, why does God punish evil? I want to try to answer that today, and so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of a journey on this. But if you go back to creation, God created us, Scripture says, to love us. That's why he created us. And God created us in such a way that he gave us this thing called free will. So ultimately, he loves us so much he wanted to give us the opportunity to love him back. We learned from Jesus that if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so one of the ways that we show, or actually the way we show God that we love him, is by being obedient to what he's called us to do. We also know from scripture that he has knit us together in our mom's room. And so while there may be accidental pregnancies, there's no accidental kids. God knits them together in the mother's womb from the time of their conception to the time they're born. He has purpose for the child. And his purpose is to love them. And so, so much does God love the creation that he's made that there was a time when Jonah, who was swallowed by the whale, right, was called to go to Nineveh and to preach to the Ninevites, 300,000 people in the city of Nineveh at the time, and to warn them of God's coming wrath. They had sinned and sinned and sinned, and finally God said, that's it. I'm going to destroy them. But before he destroyed him, he said, I'm just going to try with Jonah. I'm going to send Jonah and see if they'll turn from their sins so that I can relent. And so he sent Jonah to this land, albeit it took Jonah a little while, if you know the story. Finally got spit up by the fish. Probably some of his skin was discolored, gave him a little white tint, which kind of added to his message, I'm sure, when he walked into the city of Nineveh. But he said, turn from your sin and repent, and the whole city did. And God relented. 
Later that evening or whatever, God created a bush for Jonah to sit there because Jonah was kind of waiting for God to destroy the city. And when God didn't, he got mad. The next day, God destroyed the bush. And then Jonah got mad again. Why did you destroy the bush? And he said, look, Jonah, you got mad at this vine that you didn't help create that was just there. And I took away. You got mad that that bush ended, right? These people I've created from the very beginning, I've watched them grow There's 300,000 people in the city of Nineveh. Shouldn't I have tried to warn them, to spare them from the coming wrath? God loves this world that he's made. He loves especially his children, but he loves his creation. And his call to all of creation is follow me, trust me, believe in me. And that manifests itself through obedience. And so we know also from God's word that he calls us to follow him, that he tells us what it looks like to follow him, that he asks us, that he commands us to be obedient to following him. And again and again, he sent out prophets and priests and now pastors, right? He even has God's word all bound nicely in a Bible that you guys carry around with you, right, from time to time. He's given us his word over and over and over through the centuries, through the millennia, warning us to flee from sin, encouraging us to follow, reminding us that we have a God that loves us, that will forgive us if we repent. Over and over, his call goes out. And yet, for some reason, throughout the history of mankind, there's been some that have decided to reject that call, to reject following God, to stop trusting him, to stop believing in him, to stop following, period, to go their own way. And that is self-destructive because it leads, well, it's part and parcel of sin, which leads more and more to consequence and hardness of life and difficulty of life and more and more sin. If following God is trusting God and obedience to God, and that's the way we show God love, then disobedience is hating God, is refusing to believe in God, is rebellion in every aspect. Ultimately, God says if we further, if we continue this path and rebel against God so much that we've cut him out of our heart, there will be judgment. That he will rid the earth of that evil. Ultimately, in the end times, he will rid the whole earth of all the evil and start again in heaven where there is no more sin and no more sorrow. What's cool about God as you go through Genesis is that God just doesn't do it herky-jerky, just when he feels like it. It was all the people on earth except for one guy, Noah, and by proxy, some of his family. He was the only one left in the whole world that still trusted God. God waited to the point where it was brutal. Somebody asked about San Francisco last week. There are still Christians in San Francisco. There are still people that believe in the Lord. There are still people that love them, that are serving him, that are following him. There are. During the time of Noah, there wasn't. There was just Noah and maybe some of his kids, maybe his wife. God waited to the point where everybody had turned away from him almost before he destroyed it. We look again at Sodom and Gomorrah, and in the word got back to God, how just destructive it was. He had seen how destructive it got, how far they had gone to pursue sin. We talked about that a little bit two weeks ago, how they had given themselves over to evil in just spades. And yet even then, he sends his angels to verify. And even then, he allows Lot to warn some in the city to flee from the coming wrath. There was just Lot... And by proxy, some in his family, although as you read through the rest of the story, 
probably just Lot, right, that still loved the Lord. Yet the Lord took Lot out and his family before he destroyed. We call God's punishing sin his alien work. Something he doesn't want to do. He created us to love us. He created to be in harmony, in relationship with us forever. He can't stand the rebellion. And ultimately, he has to punish. In first, or Second Peter, though, it explains why God waits until things are just brutal. In verse 9 of chapter 3 of Second Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be buried, or I'm sorry, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so it shares in Peter that God postpones his judgment on us, oftentimes out of mercy, out of love, hoping that some will still turn back to him. He waits and he waits. Have you ever watched somebody in your life, their lives are just going spiraling down and you're thinking, how many basements do they have to hit before they wake up? God is patient. And he keeps letting us fall, hoping that something will get our attention to turn us back. We have an incredibly loving God who hates to punish and he gives all this time hoping that some will return. But God is not mocked. And ultimately, there is an end. And then you start looking at some of the consequences that sin brings, and you realize that you can see those in the perspective that he allows those to get our attention, to bring us back to repentance, to bring us back to him. They're, they're safeguards trying to bring us back. If, kind of like the whole idea, if life gets bad enough, finally we'll, we'll look for the answer. Then sometimes you ask, well, why does he allow sin? Like uh, Lot's daughters to kind of do what they did to dad and have kids in that way. The only way that God can for eternity have a group of people that love him is by giving them the opportunity to love him. And if you give them the opportunity to love them, you must necessarily give them the opportunity to reject you and not to love you. Otherwise, you're just forcing them. So again, God warns us. He would have warned Lot's daughters that he was a righteous before God. He would have taught them right from wrong. They would have known from the beginning of growing up till the time before they sinned that what they were proposing was wrong and sinful before the Lord. They would have been taught that from their earliest ages. And yet despite that, that, that teaching, despite the encouragements of a godly father, they decided to pursue sin instead to reject God's ways and to pursue their own. Certainly at that time, they could have found suitors someplace else. Zor, they just left Zor, could have taken a couple guys, right? Abraham, just a little bit away, could have gone up to Abraham. Abraham would have loved to give those daughters, mates and husbands moving forward. There's plenty of other people in that area as well that they could pick from any of the different cities but they chose to reject God and pursue their own way. I was talking to a girl one time, and she was mad at God because God allowed her divorce. And I think that sometimes that's what happens. We get mad at God when things don't go our way. We pray about something, and he doesn't answer the way we want, and 
he's not a vending machine God and we get frustrated. But think about that for a second. God, all the way from the beginning of time, way before we were born, said, I hate divorce. Don't get divorced. It hurts you, it hurts the person you're divorcing, it hurts your kids, it hurts your extended family. Don't get divorced. It's not the way I drew it up. It's not my plan for your life. Don't do it. And despite this girl knowing that from the time that she was little growing up, despite the routine encouragement from family and friends and even pastoral support to to keep working on it, to keep trying in the marriage, both parties in the marriage decided to quit. Is that God's fault? Tell me, is it God's fault when you're the one that's sinning, when you're the one that's quitting, when God has commanded you not to do it? Why do you blame God? But we have a society that loves to blame God for everything that goes wrong in life. We excuse ourselves and we blame God. And instead of running to the person that should comfort us and help us in this time of distress, we run away from him because we're mad at him. And we try to go through life alone and it's harder that way. The reality is that there is evil in the world, but we bring the evil to the world. We're the ones that sin, which is why we need forgiveness. And then God sends us Jesus. The most incredible gift I have ever could imagine. He takes away that sin, that rebellion that's in us, and he just washes it away and says as if it's never been. And so when God looks at us, and I love it, I used to do it with his kids, it's like looking at us through Jesus goggles. Oh, you guys are a mess, you're a mess. Oh, you're perfect. Because Jesus takes away the sin. He forgives, he restores, he renews. That's why we get so excited at Christmas time, because Jesus came to pursue us so that we wouldn't be lost. Now, I think that's an important backdrop because you'll read, as we go through Genesis, you're going to see some things and you're going to go, wow, why did God allow that? Why did this happen? Why would they reject God the way they did? Why is there evil in this situation? Why has it gotten so bad? And if you understand the context of why evil happens, if you understand the patience of God, if you understand what God's goal is to get us to heaven, then it starts putting all that a little bit into focus. Hopefully I explained that well enough and you're not all confused. But I have a question, so not not enough. Okay, if God knows all things, why did he send his angels to go verify Sodom and Gomorrah? My guess is it was for Abraham. God always has purpose in all that he does. Abraham was his guy, and he was giving Abraham an opportunity, a test to see what he would do. And Abraham decided to pray and to go to bat for Lot. And I'm sure as he was walking through that experience that he convinced himself he had gotten it down to enough people where they wouldn't be destroyed. He had gotten it down to the number of people in his family, most, most think. And that's why he stopped at 10. When he looked up the next day, he realized that he was wrong. And it grieved him to his heart. It had to grieve him more when Lot didn't come back to him. And then when he heard of what Lot's daughters did, it had to grieve him more but such is the state of one that continues to hope and pray for those that that get confused and lost along the way. And so we pick up today in chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac. Um, They've now been in in Canaan in the promised land for 25 years at this point. Abram and uh, Abraham now and Sarai, Sarah now, um, had been promised a son way back from the beginning when they headed out 25 years ago. 
God is finally fulfilling that promise. You know, he's been walking around this land for 25 years now, and he knows it's his because God has promised that it's his, but he doesn't really own much of it, any of it at this point. And so he's going by faith that God will provide that land. He's been going on faith for 25 years that God will provide the child. He and Sarah tried to contrive a, a different way to go forward. Mike talked about that in Ishmael. But they waited 25 years for God to fulfill the promise that he had made. This fulfilling the promise was a big deal. They finally got to experience part of the promise that God had made. Now, it wasn't the sands of the seashore. It wasn't the stars in the sky. But it was start. It was a start. They went from zero to one. They were excited. And so the story begins. The Lord visited Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of the son who was to be born to him, whom Sarah had borne him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now again, just a reminder, circumcision was in the Old Testament a sort of a sacrament like baptism would be today. It was a way of making you part of God's family. That's a big deal. When God adopts you into his family, he says, you're now mine. I'm not going to watch over you like a dad would. You're different than the neighbors now. You're my kid. You want to be there, right? And God says, for every Israelite that is born, I want you to circumcise them. This will be a mark that you're part of my family. I will watch over him. You are now part of my covenant. I will fulfill promises to them. It's where you want it to be. And then just as an encouragement not to not get circumcised, if you refuse to do so, you'll get kicked out of the family of Israel or killed. God gets pretty specific when he wants you to follow, right? Now, let me just ask you, can you be circumcised in, in, in the Israelite family and still reject God? Sure you can. It's a mark that you're part of God's family. It's the same as if you were born in a family. Can you so mess up? Can you so do everything you possibly can to upset mom and dad to the point where they get to a point where they're like, uh, you can't live here anymore. Or we're not going to give you any more help anymore. Or maybe in some cases, we don't want to see you anymore. It's hard for a parent to imagine getting to that place, but there's things that you could pursue doing that could so alienate yourself from that family that you wouldn't be welcome anymore. Think about some of the people in the news uh, in the past. So God says, you want to be part of my family. Just by extension today, God calls us, commands us again to be baptized. Baptism is like an adoption into God's family. And then on top of that, he sends us his Holy Spirit to be with us, to walk with us, to help us understand right from wrong, to help us understand the scriptures, to be a comforter in times of need, to be a reminder of God's promises, to be a strength for us. Somebody, and oftentimes you get the question, can you be saved and not be baptized? Well, the thief on the cross comes to mind. But he didn't have an opportunity to be baptized. The question really becomes, why would you be a believer in Jesus Christ? Confess him as Lord and Savior, not be baptized. What's keeping you from being officially adopted into his family? What's keeping you from wanting that experience with the Holy Spirit and power? Why would you do that? The question becomes. And yet we have a whole segment of our culture today that wants to wait or doesn't think baptism is important. Can you be saved without baptism? Sure, but 
But ultimately, the question is, why are you rebelling against God and not doing what he's commanded you to do? And so he was circumcised in the eight days, eight years, or eight days old as God commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet have borne him a son in his old age? Now, just for context here, the whole laughter thing uh, harkens back to when Abraham laughed with amazement and, and Sarah laughed with a little bit of doubt, right? And so they named him Laughter, which is Isaac, because God told him to name him Isaac, so they did. But the other part of this, I want you to, to just comprehend this. It was really important for women at this time to have heirs, Especially if you're the matriarch of this huge caravan to have an heir, to have a son. It was your retirement plan in part, but you were kind of a laughingstock if you didn't. You were looked down upon because you didn't have the blessing of God shown. You were less than. Sarah had lived with that for 90 years. The sniping behind closed doors, the looks of derision every time somebody had a kid, Here's the matriarch, can't have a kid. (laughs) She was made fun of over and over. It gives you a sense of why she was so bothered by Ishmael and Hagar. When she had, Hagar had a kid, wouldn't even have taken anything, barely a comment, and it would have struck Sarah to the core. All those years of being made fun of, all those years of derision, and now her servant has one. And even if it wasn't a big deal what she did, she would have been just cut to the quick. She was celebrating today. Her shame had been taken away. Her relationship with God and the power of God was vindicated. She was celebrating with everybody, saying, look how powerful my God is. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the, that, on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of his slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham was, or Sarah was celebrating It had been two or three years now since she had Isaac when he was weaned. They were celebrating the fact that that he was to that point. Out of the corner of her eye, or maybe in front of her, I don't know, she sees Ishmael making fun of her kid. All the shame, all the frustration, all the hurt came flooding back. She wanted him gone. It was only because God intervened in the first place that she was back. She had to make her peace with that. She was a godly woman. She was trying But there was tension obviously still there. And so she asked Abraham to cast out Ishmael, boy of 13, 14, yeah, 13, 14, 16 years old, right around there, and ask him just to leave. This kid who he had prayed to God for that he would still bless Ishmael, this kid who he loved more than anything except now for Isaac. This was his son. This was his kid. He'd be gone, she said. He's not sharing with Isaac anything. And while her intent was evil, we'll see that God allowed it. This displeased Abraham, but he went to the Lord and God said to Abraham, be not displeased with the boy because of your slave woman. 
Whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. It's an interesting kind of discourse there. God's purpose is through Isaac. And just strategically, probably for God, it is good that he's gone because it just makes sure that everything goes through Isaac. There's no interplay. There's no, you know, warring within the family, all those kind of things. Sarah's intent was evil, but God allowed it for Isaac's good. And then what he said to Abraham is he said, trust me. I'm going to take care of Ishmael. Don't you worry. Will you trust me to take care of Ishmael even when you're not there? I promise you I'll make him into this huge nation. I'll take care of him. You don't have to worry. I've got this. It's going to be okay. Every time God has asked Abraham to trust, and this is what blows my mind about Abraham and why I just think he's so amazing. The very next day, or in this case, the very next morning, he obeys. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and the skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. He didn't give her much. He probably gave her sustenance enough for her and her son to make it to the next town, the next encampment. It would have been enough for that, but somehow they got lost along the way. And as they get lost, so it continues the rest of the story, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God came to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, there's a couple of things here. I, I said that Abraham didn't give her enough. Why? Because he was trusting God implicitly that he would take care of Ishmael. Giving her a whole bunch would just get her further along, right? But ultimately, he wasn't going to be there in six months or nine months or 12 months. And so he's trusting that God would immediately take care of Hagar and the boy. The coolest part about this passage for me, I, I love Hagar because when she was really in need, she called out to the Lord. And, and we remember the last time she was out there, God is the God who sees me. And what does it say here? God is the God who hears me, actually hears the boy. God is a God who sees, he is a God who hears you when you cry. He is a God who is present in your life in the difficulty and the hardship and the good times and the bad times, but he sees your life. He is not ignorant of what's happening to you. This was horrible where she was. She had been wronged by a family that she had been with. She had served Sarah for 20 plus years as her personal servant. And this is the way she was treated. It wasn't her idea to have Abraham's kid. Sarah forced her. And once she conceived, everything went wrong. Sarah's countenance changed toward, toward Hagar. So here she is in the desert and she's crying out to the Lord. And the Lord hears and comes to her. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I'll make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. 
And he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. A couple of things here, too. First of all, you notice they stayed right there where God appeared to him. There's a well. He's going to take care of us here. And then the other thing is, Lot's girls, right? There's not a person in the world that can be out here for us. And, And what does she do? She's in the middle of the desert. She's a single mom. She finds a husband or finds a wife for him in Egypt, which was a little further away than Lot's family would have to go to find someone. But she trusted the Lord, and the Lord heard. And again, in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, he took care of Ishmael, and he took care of Hagar. This whole idea of faith is a hard thing. Trusting is a hard thing, okay? But God just calls all the way through the Bible, trust me. And watch me fulfill what I have promised. Trust me, and you'll see miracles. Trust me, I've got you. Our lure to sin, the complexities of the world, all that kind of stuff make that so hard for us. But ultimately, God just calls us to trust. Know that I'm with you. Know that I'm able. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, is that right? Um, Yeah. The commander of his army said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Just kind of a cool thing that people from the outside, people that don't know God, you know, uh, actually Abimelech would have known God because he spoke to him that night warning him. But it would be cool just to, to people on the outside looking in, see God's hand of blessing on you. Nebuchadnezzar said that about Daniel. And you just gotta imagine, what a cool statement that God would, other people outside of the church would see God's presence in your life. That you're different from everybody else because God has his hand on you. What, what a testament that would be. And so he said, God is with you in all that you do. And he had seen Abraham and the blessing that God continued to give him. So he said, now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so also you deal kindly with me, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. And so kind of the backdrop to this is that Abraham's caravan was growing, and it was becoming more and more powerful. And Abimelech was powerful, but Abraham was becoming equally powerful, or at least a threat to Abimelech's sovereignty. He may or may not have heard what Abraham's going to deal with next, But he wanted to make sure if there was strife, they would work through it amicably, that Abraham didn't have different intentions. So when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meanings of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So they set up this tree, this non-aggression pact toward one another. The thing I love about what Abraham did is he could have kept silent on this. I mean, if they had gone to war, it would have been a bad deal. He wanted to, uh, good relationships with Abimelech. There's no question. 
it would have been easy for him to stay silent on the one and just talk about Beersheba and say, hey, can we just agree that this is my well? But he shared the truth in love. He confronted what needed to be confronted, and it allowed both parties to move forward on equal footing. I think there's a lesson here. Um, I do a lot of counseling from time to time, and one of the biggest struggles that it seems that we have is sharing truth in love. We like to pretend if we don't rock the boat, everything will kind of even out. If we don't make any waves, all of a sudden we can go skiing because it'll be nice. But, but not bringing things up isn't a way to move through anything. It's a way to keep things in the back. It's a way to allow things to fester. It's, it's a way to not resolve issues in your life. It's important for us. It's important for you and your long-term health to be able to deal with things honestly, truthfully, and lovingly with the people that you are in relationship with. And so I, I just use this as an encouragement to say, do that. If there's an elephant in your family, you need to talk about it. In truth, in love, with the goal of not winning the argument, but winning the relationship. If there's an issue at work, use your wisdom, but try to work through and navigate that as truthfully, honestly as you can so you can get to the other side of things. We've got to start being people that stand up and say things that are true, even when they're hard. And you see this happen the worst when it's with people that we care about. We need to warn them sometimes to flee from the coming wrath because they're pursuing an evil way. We need to warn them that their choices in life are destructive. We need to share with them that they need Jesus. At some level, we need to start talking about that. I shared this morning that so often I think we're just like people on the side watching the Titanic take off to the people in our life. We're swaving at them. Hey, have a good time. Even though we know they're going to their destruction. And we do that because we're afraid to say anything, afraid to get involved, afraid to complicate our lives. So we just keep waving. God calls us to love more, to confront more in love. Again, the goal is not winning the argument. The goal is bringing them to heaven. The goal is showing them Jesus. Christianity isn't about argument. It's about a relationship with our Savior. It's about heaven. It's about Jesus. And we've got to start talking to people in that light. The other thing that I like here, if I can remember because I got off topic there. Um, yeah, we'll come back to it if I remember later on. Okay, very good. Uh, we're going to go to, like, I'm going to share a story with you and it'll be the backdrop for next week when we talk about the sacrifice of, of Isaac. For those of you that were here this morning, I, I share it with you again. Uh, it's a cool story, so it make you think. The whole purpose of the story is to kind of expand upon this idea that we need to love more. As I go through this, I want you to think about the number of people in your life that you would love in this way. So I'll begin. Uh, I want to share a story with you about a guy named Bill. In a lot of ways, Bill was your average guy. He was an ordinary, everyday guy. He worked uh, at a financial, as a financial consultant. He wasn't rich. He wasn't poor. He lived in the suburbs, a ranch house with a picket fence around it. He was married. He had a family. In many ways, he was your average guy. He was a Christian, too. He didn't have theological degrees. He didn't have a lot of letters at the end of his name. 
but he had always been so grateful to God for taking him off the path of self-destruction that he had been on for years. He'd always been so grateful to God for turning his life around. He'd always had this great gratitude to God for that. So Bill died, and this pastor friend of mine went, and he said, as he sat there, he was struck by a lot of really cool things, he thought. First of all, he said, I walked into the place, and it was packed with hundreds and hundreds of people. He said, I was amazed because it was in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, and that just never happens. But there were literally hundreds and hundreds of people there. The other thing he said that was kind of unusual is that they put microphones up and down the aisles. And then the pastor who was doing the service got up, and he said, this is what we're going to do today to celebrate Bill's life. If you are going to be in heaven someday because God used Bill to bring you the message of hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, if you use Bill to point you toward home, the home that you can have in heaven, come up to one of these microphones and tell us your story. And then the pastor said he was blown away when immediately over 100 people got up and made their ways to the microphones. It's going to be a long service, he thought. <laughs> but he was wrong. Well, he was right. It was a long service. But he was blown away by the stories they shared about his friend Bill. One of the people who stood up that day shared this story, and he started by describing how Bill had gone into the city, into Chicago one day, to do some business. A panhandler came up to him, a homeless person named Robert, and he said, do you have some money for some food? I'm really hungry. And I think Robert was blown away by Bill's response because Bill was thinking of something more. He was thinking, I'd like to fill this guy's stomach, but more than that, I'd like to see his soul get filled. So Bill said, how about if I buy you lunch? And so Bill takes him to a restaurant and sits down with this homeless guy and he gets to know him and they build a little bit of a relationship. But the time the meal was over, Bill said, hey, you know what, the 4th of July is coming up in a day or so. Why don't you come out to my house in the suburbs and celebrate the 4th of July with us, with me and my family? You can stay a few days with us and, and we'll have a great time. And then he went and he gave him some train fare and said, I'll meet you at the 3.30 train on the 4th of July. The 4th of July comes and Bill goes down to the train station to pick up Robert. The train comes and the train goes. Robert doesn't get off. That was interesting, Bill's response here. Did he throw up his arm saying, well, I tried, God? No. Bill then got into his car and he drove down into the city and began going from bar to bar to bar in the area where Robert would likely be hanging out, looking all the while for Robert. He couldn't find him, but he didn't give up. He kept seeking him out, kept going after him until finally he finds Robert asleep on a park bench in his own excrement. Bill picked him up and cleaned him up and put him in his car and drove him to his house. He fed him a meal and they celebrated the 4th of July together. In the next few days they talked and, and Bill told him about it, the fact that, Robert, you are made in the image of God Almighty and he loves you. He cares for you and he wants to take you home to heaven with him someday. Someday. Robert said, man, I love that. And he prayed and he opened his life to Jesus Christ as his forgiver and leader. And you'd think the whole thing was divinely orchestrated because just a few days later after that, Robert died. And the guy who was sharing started to choke up and said, Robert is at home in heaven. He's at home in heaven because a guy named Bill was faithful to Jesus Christ. A guy who said, I'm not going to see a homeless person, but I'm going to see someone made in the image of God who I can bring the message of hope and eternal life to I love this story, and I'll share briefly why. The first time I read it, I was convicted a lot by it. Still am. I say I love people. I would say I do a lot for people, invest my time in people. But I just want to confess to you that there's very few people in my life that I love the way that Bill did Robert, a complete stranger. 
There's so many places along the storyline where I might have stopped. It might have stopped before I invited him to lunch. Might have stopped before I invited him to my house with my family for the weekend. Certainly might have stopped before I bought him train fare. Might have stopped when he didn't show up at the train station and not went and looked for him. Might have stopped when I found him in his own filth and excrement because he passed out from drinking before taking him home. And yet for me, this is a picture of how Jesus pursues us. He doesn't pursue us because we're perfect or we got things together. He pursues us because he loves us. And he goes out of his way to clean us off through his forgiveness and to strengthen us through his word and remind us that our purpose in life, after we get to know him, is to share him with as many people as we can because we love them in truth and want them to be in heaven with us one day. Okay, I want you to think about who is it that you love in that way? Is there a lot of people? I was talking about this in Bible study one time, and a guy said, I don't even love my kids that way. If they didn't show up at the train station, they're not eating dinner, you know? Who would you love in that way, where you would go out of your way in that way, give up your time in that way, give up your resources in that way? Who do you love in that way? I think most of the time we get down to family. Not all of our family, but kids maybe, grandkids maybe. Maybe there's a friend or two outside of that. And then I want you to think about not doing it for your family, but for doing it for a guy like Robert, who isn't related to us, we don't owe anything to. He's messed up his own life in spades. And then I want you to think about that next week as we come, as we talk about this test that God gives Abraham. If you couldn't do this for your kid, you couldn't do what God asks Abraham to do for his kid. And if you couldn't do it for a stranger, then be blown away at the love that God gives when he sent his son for a bunch of people who don't deserve it. But he does it because he loves. He does it because he wants us in heaven. He seeks us to save us. Let me pray. God, we love you so much. And, you know, as we talk through these different elements in Genesis, especially Abraham's life, there's lots of stuff, Lord. Father, we know that you are God that loves us, but we also know, Lord, that that you hate it when we go the opposite way. There are times, Lord, where you have to punish, not because you want to, but because you need to, for the sake of your elect, for the sake of your name. We know from your word that you are good and that you are righteous and that all you do is right. There's times in our life where we forget that and we get confused, but help us recenter ourselves on that truth. And then remind us, Lord, how much you love us, how you pursue us, how you're patient with us, what you were willing to give up for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Let us celebrate Christmas this year as an expression of your unbelievable love, a love that wouldn't let us go, a love that would give up everything for us, a love that came to save. And pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.